0: Well, a very warm welcome to this series of Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh for the session 2011 to 2012. My name is Stuart Brown. I'm Professor of Ecclesiastical History, Head of the School of Divinity, and Vice Convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. As is our custom, let me say a few words about the historic Gifford lectures before I introduce our speaker. The Gifford lectures were established in 1885 by a gift from Adam Lord Gifford, a justice of the Court of Session and a man of broad cultivation and learning. Lord Gifford was committed to promoting a theistic interpretation of the universe. He endowed a series of public lectures at each of the four older Scottish universities, Edinburgh, St. Andrews, Glasgow, and Aberdeen, for, quote, promoting, advancing, teaching, and diffusing the study of natural theology in the widest sense of that term. Or in other words, quote, the knowledge of God and the foundation of ethics or morals. The first Gifford Lectures were delivered in 1888 and they very soon became one of the world's most important forums for philosophical inquiry and reflection. We take particular pride in the Gifford series here at the University of Edinburgh, where our past Gifford lectures have included such figures as Edward Caird, William James, John Dewey, William Temple, Arnold Toynbee, Albert Schweitzer, Karl Barth, Reinhold Niebuhr, Owen Chadwick, and Iris Murdoch. Our Gifford lecturer for the session 2011 and 2012 is Professor Dermot McCulloch, Professor of the History of the Church at the University of Oxford. Educated at the University of Cambridge, the University of Liverpool, and the University of Oxford, Professor McCulloch taught at the University of Cambridge and the University of Bristol before joining the Faculty of Theology at the University of Oxford in 1995. He is the author or editor of numerous books, and I hope I might be forgiven for highlighting only three of these The first is his magisterial biography of Thomas Cranmer, which appeared in 1996, and which revived a a positive sense of the great ideas that informed and drove the English Reformation. The second is his beautifully written tour de force, Reformation, Europe's House Divided, which demonstrated his powers of historical synthesis and his ability to take a long view of a movement that transformed Western civilization. And then finally, there is his history of Christianity, which appeared in 2009 and which has, through a deeply impressive learning, transformed our conceptions about Christianity, showing it to be a global, and a multicultural religious movement from the beginning. Many will know this work through Professor McCulloch's compelling BBC television series on the subject. The trajectory of these three works from England to Europe and then to the wider world demonstrates an ever-widening historical vision and understanding. He has received numerous prizes and honors and was knighted for his services to historical studies in the Queen's Honors List in 2012. And most recently, he has informed and entertained us with his three-part BBC television series on how God made the English. (laughs) Probably not intended as a contribution to the upcoming referendum on Scottish independence, But in truth, it provided a moving appeal for an open and religiously pluralistic England. The theme of his Gifford Lectures is Silence in Christian History, The Witness of Holmes' Dog. And over the course of the next two weeks, we will have six lectures on this intriguing theme. The lecture this evening will be recorded, and it will be available online in the Gifford website. Professor McCulloch, it is an honor now to invite you to present the first of your Gifford lectures on Voices and Silence in Tanakh and the Christian New Testament. Professor McCulloch.
1: Thank you, Stuart, very much for that generous introduction. Uh, It's a delight to be here. I'm very grateful to the University of Edinburgh and to the Gifford Committee for inviting me, Uh, coming back not quite to the place where I was born, but the place where uh, most of my earliest memories took place, where family lived until the 1960s. Uh, So this is a return home and a very welcome one for me. Well, let us think about Holmes's Holmes's dog, the most famous dog in detective fiction, the dog that did nothing in the nighttime, thus affording Sherlock Holmes the vital clue to solve Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's little mystery, Silver Blaze. The dog did not bark, because obviously the midnight visitor was someone whom the dog knew well, and that insight is as much about human anthropology as canine psychology. Like dogs, we are pattern-making animals. Only when we know the patterns well can we point out what is missing from the patterns, what should be there but is not. Silence is a vital part of what is missing in history. It makes sense of the written and visual evidence that we possess. Margaret Atwood has observed that two and two doesn't necessarily get to the truth. The living bird is not its labeled bones. Silence is a major part of that flesh for clothing historical bones. And Holmes's dog also tells us why history is such a subversive discipline and why all of its inquiries have a potentially transforming effect on the present. Holmes's method is that of the critical historian, the historian of religion included. It embodies a call to refocus, to see things as they are. I'll be considering absences of noise later in this series and also what happens when silence ends. Inflexible pattern makers get very angry when others offer new patterns or when it's pointed out that there are parts of the pattern missing. That, it seems to me, is why so much conservative religion in the modern world seems so deeply and perpetually cross. <laughs> now, silence, of course, can be positive as well as negative. And I hope to explore with you those religions, religious silences, which may be more than sheer absence. Though I am painfully aware that your Gifford lecturer of 110 years ago, William James, has magisterially preempted me in that uh, exploration, that book uh, which emerged from the lectures as varieties of religious experience. And how does silence relate to the Christ who is word, logos? And these lectures are, of course, an incarnation of that problem. And no doubt many of you have already savored the incongruity of their lecturer talking for six hours about silence. But I thought that the principal and university might fear that their money had been ill-spent if I simply stood here mute for those six hours and then collected my fee and travel expenses. Well, it's hardly a new problem. Christians have been arguing vociferously about how to talk about silence from their first efforts in the second century to create a distinctively Christian negative theology. What follows can only be a sketch in these six hours. And critics will observe that it becomes heavily biased towards the history of the Western Church of the Latin Rite and its successors, Protestantism and post-Reformation Roman Catholicism. Previously, I've tried, as Jay has just said, to introduce a perspective on the Christian past which gives a proper place to the rest of Christianity, particularly the non calcedonian churches or anti-Chalcedonian churches, which for several centuries looked as if they were the future of Christian development. So I feel rueful about those omissions now. But I can't do more than point them out before anyone else does. Power is often sustained by distortions of truth or reality, particularly when power takes the form of claiming a monopoly on truth. And it's hardly surprising, then, that Christianity's most lasting and powerful monarchy, the papacy, has gathered to itself more silences of shame and distortion of truth than other sources of authority in the Christian tradition. But Protestants should not be complacent. In their days of power, they have a good deal to answer for as well. Strident proclamation has many dangers. Silence has its own eloquence. And sometimes the gap between them is filled by laughter. We devote the rest of this session to the Bible, Old Testament and New. But we'll call the Old Testament uh, the name that it had originally, the Tanakh. And that's better to hear the voices in their own terms within the Tanakh without any Christian interpretation or assumptions. Now, what becomes apparent from a careful reading of the Tanakh is the surprising degree of negativity apparent throughout its books, towards a cluster of ideas around silence. Now one of the darkest examples is a pronouncement of Amos writing on the fate awaiting the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BCE. He says, then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, says the Lord God. The dead bodies shall be many, in every place they shall be cast out in silence. So this is a massacre, too horrific, even for the noise of mourning. Repeatedly, the Tanakh links the silence and darkness of defeat in war to the ultimate human defeat in death. Psalm 31 urges Yahweh to let the wicked go dumbfounded to Sheol and it pursues this theme of silencing the wicked, let the lying lips be dumb. And around this idea of dumbness, dumbness, the people of Yahweh created a cluster of negative meanings, some maliciously gleeful, some agonized and despairing. Dumbness equated with powerlessness, and neither friend nor foe would prosper if they were dumb. It was much fun to be had at the expense of false gods represented in human form. So the people of Israel sang in Yahweh's temple, classically in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's men's hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. Those who make them are like them, so are all who trust in them. A certain sort of Protestant Christian would find that a very congenial theme later on. Israelites who rejected dumb idols in the likeness of men might be thought to have got beyond the idea that gods had ears like human beings, and so would appreciate a physical sound for divine praises. But it was hard to escape the general assumption in the ancient world that worship had to be vocal. Yahweh still demanded vocal praise. And besides, there was a good moral case to be made out for vocal prayer. There was every reason to distrust those who indulged in silent prayer. What had they got to hide? And what undesirable outcomes were they seeking? So, a prevailing theme in the Tanakh is the goodness of cultic noise, properly directed. Israel's public worship of God was generally extremely noisy. How could it be otherwise when countless thousands converged on the Jerusalem temple for high festivals, particularly on the eve of its uh, final destruction in 70 CE, It's one of the biggest temples of the Middle East? If dumb idols were bad and dumb worshippers were bad, how much more culpable were dumb prophets? The whole point of a prophet was to be a mouthpiece of Yahweh, carrying urgent messages for his people. And that meant the prophet must roar like a lion on behalf of God, Amos, or sound like a trumpet, 3rd Isaiah. And the classic condemnation of those who did not is to be found in that same prophet of of Isaiah, the third trumpeter, the 3rd Isaiah. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are dumb dogs. They cannot Another dog. In certain circumstances In certain circumstances Yahweh would punish his people by depriving them of the tough love which his judgments represented. Such was the fate of Ezekiel, when Yahweh made Ezekiel's tongue cleave to the roof of his mouth apparently for seven and a half years. Now it's possible that To see this text as saying that what God does is suspend Ezekiel's ability to be a mediator or arbitrator, to be to them uh, uh, an arbitrator. No longer, in other words, can Ezekiel put the people's case to God, but that does not stop him delivering God's judgments to them. He has become a communicator in one direction only. And that situation lasted until the prophet heard the news of the final fall of Jerusalem. Now what also may be a surprise about the books of the Tanakh is how little they align the words for peace or rest with the concept of silence. Shalom and cognate Hebrew words have the implication of a state of general prosperity, quiet everyday activity. Peace, or rest, then, is associated with busy, regulated business, particularly liturgical business. And this is echoed with sustained sarcasm in a vision of the first Isaiah, who sees the whole earth at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Now that's the beginning of an extraordinary mock triumphal procession to welcome the entrance of the defeated king of Babylon into Sheol, an exultant mirror image of the triumphs of Yahweh. And in such circumstances, peace is as far from silence as the chorus of happy villagers at the beginning of a traditional pantomime. Above all, Yahweh is a communicator, who in normal circumstances expresses himself in noise, usually emphatic noise. His act of creation, described in two different ways in Genesis, is intimately linked to speech. And in the early account, which as you realize, of course, is now the second account in the text, God starts speaking when he has created a man. He tells the man what the man can and cannot do. But he also then involves his man in the act of creation, bringing the beasts and the birds to the man to see what he would do call them. And the later priestly account of creation, the first one in the book, is more thoroughgoing in its association of speech with the divine work. From the moment that God moves to end the formlessness and void state of the earth, day by day, over six days, he repeatedly commands form into existence, beginning with let there be light. And then at his first creation of sentient life, he adds extra words words of blessing to those words of command and the priestly account also adds that at the culmination of its seven day structure on the seventh day god finished his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done now this day of rest received his blessing like all the other days of activity. So it was a part of the creative process rather than an end to that creative process. And out of that thought, later commentators on the Genesis creation stories were going to create a great deal more, as we will see. Well, like rulers on earth, God was a pronouncer of commands and admonishments. There's a particularly vivid picture of God in his court at the end of the first book of Kings where the prophet Micaiah ben Imlah discomfits King Ahab with his vision of God sitting enthroned in glory, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left, and one said one thing and another said another. That is, the heavenly court was as full of a babble of voices as King Ahab's court in which the prophet spoke. Now it's an exaggeration to say, as is sometimes asserted, that the Tanakh makes silence an important feature of God's appearances, his theophanies. Not only does God frequently appear amid a great deal of cosmic noise, thunder or fire, but the point of Yahweh's appearance is invariably to convey some message to his people. He needs a voice. Sometimes an an emissary, a servant, brings the message, as one would expect of a great king. But in the earlier examples of these encounters, there is remarkably little difference between emissary and, and deity. The Book of Numbers, for instance, contains one of the Tanakh's most engaging anecdotes of dumbness overcome for the Lord's purposes. You'll remember it, Balaam's ass. Balaam's ass indignantly answers back against her master's mistreatment to point out to him that there's an angel of the Lord with a drawn sword barring their way forward. And then the angel speaks, but the voice of that angel to Balaam then elides very easily into the voice of Yahweh. Now, the most famous apparent counter-example, what might be a theophany of quietness, is in Elijah's view of God on the mountain. After gale, earthquake, and fire, Elijah hears what the King James Bible calls a still, small voice. Behind which phrase lies a Hebrew voice of thin silence, or sound of a light whisper. Well, some modern commentators raise the alarming possibility that this famous phrase could originally have had an entirely opposite meaning. As thunderous or crushing and roaring sound which would make the vision a logical progression of drama rather than an anti-climax. But it's been like that for quite a long time, as still small voice, and it's inspired much religious reflection. But even if we keep that traditional reading, God's light whisper is still obstinately, if quietly, loquacious. Conversely, throughout the Tanakh, the silence of God provokes a chorus of protest expostulation and anguished supplication. That silence was to be associated with the nation's many disasters, and reaction was embedded in the liturgy of the temple in the Psalms. Psalm 22 is the most obvious, not least because Jesus felt it to have a very personal significance. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, and find no rest. Now that is not a picture of what Christians would later call a hidden God Deus Absconditus. This is a God who has apparently made a grim policy decision to withdraw his presence from his people in the manner of a great power closing down its embassy to a foreign nation on the eve of war. Now on the basis of this uh, admittedly lightning tour of the Tanakh I would go so far as to argue that the majority view of silence, among its various writers, is that silence is not often a quality to be sought, dwelt on in meditation, or commended. Yet amidst so many scriptural voices, that of course is not the whole story. First, temple worship was perfectly capable of being hospitable to silence, because from the outset, the temple had a threefold division between antechamber, where lots of crowds were, sanctuary, and holy of holies. The crowds might be kept physically at bay from the most sacred place. It would be only natural to find silence as one aspect of liturgical reverence, since the same was true in everyday society. Subjects fell silent in the presence of their rulers and even the powerful were attentive to someone recognized as having something worthwhile to say. So the crowds in the temple would have found it unsurprising that on occasion they were expected to conform with social expectations and keep silence before Yahweh. Significant in this connection is the charming story opening the books of Samuel about his mother, Hannah, so long in despair at her childlessness. Hannah prayed in tears to God In the shrine of Shiloh and she was observed by Eli the priest who was not pleased at what he took to be her irreverence I quote Hannah was speaking in her heart only her lips moved and her voice was not heard therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman and Eli said to her how long will you be drunken put away your wine from you but Hannah answered no my lord I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Eli was impressed and sent her away with a blessing and the hope that Yahweh would answer her prayers, which of course Yahweh did, supplying Israel with one of its greatest prophets. Now the point here seems to be that silent prayer to the Lord was a controversial and debatable custom. It could well be considered unnatural. And the story may have arisen as a conscious effort to justify silent prayer, particularly in view of the fact that the priest who made this mistake about Hannah's honest piety had not served the true temple in Jerusalem, but the now discredited shrine in Shiloh. And the story eventually proved crucial in making respectable the practice of silent prayer in both Judaism and Christianity. But the the struggle was going to be long and hard one psalm significantly develops this theme of worshipful silence to give it a correspondence in the cosmos to silent worship uh, on earth and cosmos. Psalm 19. Now, those familiar with the Christian choral repertoire will not realize how exceptional Psalm 19 is among the psalms because if they've been in a choir, they will frequently have lustily sung the setting of the opening verses made by Franz Josef Haydn in his Oratorio, The Creation. Still, the most popular section of the whole work, The Heavens Are Telling the Glory of God, a rumbustious chorus, and Haydn significantly stops short of setting the end of the extraordinary diminuendo which closes down the psalm's opening proclamation. He merely provides a glimpse of it before he returns to one of the most operatically jolly of any of his finales. And what clearly exercised Haydn and needed to be played down at this point in his work was the psalm text's turn to wordlessness in the praise and knowledge of God. And the passage is is remarkable for the number of variants on the idea of speech, which it crams into a short passage. I'll quote it Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech nor are the words, their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through the whole earth and their words to the end of the world." Now this is a cosmic glimpse of a worship of God beyond human speech. And it fired the imagination of later writers who imported many other silences into the Tanakh's visions of creation, as we'll see. And another voice, within the long term, equally transformative in the status of silence in that offshoot of Judaism which became Christianity. It's what might be termed a minority report on silence from the second prophet contained in the book of Isaiah. He was writing just after Cyrus, king of Persia, had allowed Babylonian Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. In the middle of the pronouncements, which have come to be known as the Songs of the Suffering Servant, Deutero Isaiah says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb. Now that text is actually very close to an earlier prophet's pronouncement, Jeremiah, about his own sufferings. I quote, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes. But one feature of Isaiah's song has no precedent in Jeremiah. It is the silence of the servant. This is the first time, silence. When the second Isaiah was writing, the returned people of Israel were doing their best to restore the ravaged temple, painfully recovering from defeat destruction and exile, debating how that experience might relate to Yahweh's purposes. They found here an image of silence, which not only reflected their own terrible experience, but looked forward in hope and restoration. Over the next centuries, successive generations in the land first applied this message to their continuing sufferings as a community. And then some began to see the silent suffering servant as an individual, perhaps the Anointed One, or Messiah, who would save Israel. And when applied to an individual, it became an image of crucial importance for Christian self-identity, and dumbness was to be a vital part of that, as we'll see. Steadily, the discussion of silence in Jewish tradition expanded as the Tanakh became a fixed canon, other literature developed which was a conscious enrichment of this now canonical corpus. A great number of texts survive, varying in date from the second century BCE to the first century of the common era. Although many take on the guise of much older figures to be found in the Tanakh to emphasize their own authority as revealing God's purposes and message in new ways, hence their group description as apocalyptic from the Greek for revelation. Now, the background of this apocalyptic literature was not merely Judaism's continuing conversation with its own troubled past, but a new dialogue with an outside culture, in this case, Greek, through the Hellenistic monarchs uh, who had succeeded Alexander the Great. The contours of Jewish religion now changed, diversified, and new themes emerged, many of them far more hospitable than the Tanakh itself to a positive notion of silence. Central to these developments was a view of God as much more withdrawn from his world. Perhaps that was natural, given Yahweh's bafflingly capricious interaction with his people. Yet it was encouraged by Judaism's increasing dialogue with Greek culture, climaxing in the work of the great Jewish philosopher, scholar, Philo of Alexandria, an older contemporary of Jesus. Plato had influenced various strands of Greek thought to conceive of one supreme and very remote divine being, beyond the traditional Greek pantheon and beyond being itself. So for thoughtful Jews, particularly Hellenistic Jews, God dwelt more constantly in the highest heaven. His messengers, angels or spirits were more likely to be employed to bring his commands to humanity than in the past and any human encounter with him was liable to involve a journey through an increasingly complicated, multi-compartmentalized heavenly court, a bit like the court of those Hellenistic monarchs, where once the silence of God had been a matter for misery and loud complaint, now it was seen as just part of the way things were. Now, if God was more taciturn than he used to have been, he still disclosed himself to his creation, So did the ultimate God discussed by Plato. Philo of Alexandria seized on the use of the word Logos, Logos, in the Greek translation of the Tanakh, the Septuagint. And from that, he conceived of a firstborn Logos, a word, or discourse, who from the beginning was the beginning and the name of God, and who was to be perceived throughout the Tanakh. Philo would know just how much this name Logos resembled the world soul in the writings of Plato. The Alexandrian Jew was setting a new direction in philosophy. For him, silence had as much to convey about the sacred as speech. Each had their own value. And as these Jews reflected on their past, they looked, of course, at their creation stories, those two stories positively inviting creative rethinking as commentators strove to draw out their contrasting messages, enrich their brevity. And there was an understandable uh, uh, interest in the priestly account of God resting on the seventh day, because it was the origin of that thing which made Judaism so distinctive, the Sabbath rest. Jewish keeping of the Sabbath on earth mirrored its observance in heaven. Silence had not appeared explicitly in either of the two original creation accounts, but now it began to put in an appearance in apocalyptic literature. Consider 2 Esdras, chapter six, verse 39, which is probably roughly contemporary with Philo. Now this text adds a new element to primeval formlessness. The spirit was hovering and darkness and silence embraced everything. Now that created a pleasing correspondence in the act of creation. It began in formless silence as the spirit hovered, but on the Sabbath it ended in the restful silence of a world fully formed and structured. Small wonder that this seized the imaginations of both Jews and the first Christians in the first century of the common era it was natural to see the Messiah appearing after that final silence, which is in fact what 2 Esdras proclaimed. To find other texts which proclaim the fulfillment of this hope, we now have to turn to the adventure away from Judaism, which was and is Christianity. The sacred books of Judaism immediately signified something new to Christians. Take Paul's epistle to the Romans. Paul speaks of the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Kept secret, that phrase. Uh, Literally, having been kept silent. Paul celebrates the unveiling of truths which had previously been locked up in the Tanakh, hidden from its uninstructed readers. And so built into Christian understanding of the function of the New Testament is that it exists to put an end to a great silence. Let's move forward a few decades from Paul to the last years of the first century to the four Gospels. In Luke's birth narratives, Paul's theme of an end to the Tanakh's silence becomes a story. The central character could not be more resonant for the purpose, for he is a priest of the Jerusalem temple, Zechariah, whose name just happens to be the same as one of the last prophets in the Tanakh. The angel Gabriel visits Zechariah, by now an old man, to tell him that his equally aged wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. Zechariah naturally expresses skepticism and the Christian reader is expected to draw the conclusion that this is the reaction you'd expect from a priest of the old dispensation. And forthwith, Zechariah is rewarded by being struck dumb. Now that continues until he shows his consent to an unexpected name for the boy, John, his newborn son. As the priest names the boy in writing, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Well by now the angel Gabriel had made a second pronouncement. Mary learns that she will bear the son of God. So the birth of John and Jesus, involve a classic expression of dumbness turned to praise and prophecy, familiar to any attentive Jewish reader of the Tanakh. But the theme is now doing new work for a new dispensation. And behind the narratives and the editorial opinions of the Gospel writers, lurks the first interpreter of Jesus's life, Jesus himself. Now what seems apparent is that Jesus uses silence in a deliberate, self-conscious way to convey messages about himself. His trial and death narratives, the passion stories, resonate to psalms of lament, which speak in distress about the silence of God but now applied to the circumstances of Jesus' impending death on a cross. Psalm 22 is only one of them. And what's noticeable is that they are present in all four Gospels, all four Gospels, John's Gospel included, even though John rarely shares the exegetical concerns of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's a good indicator that Jesus himself had reached out to these ancient scriptural resources. All the uses of Psalms as reference points in the Passion stories represent one of the negative aspects of silence stressed in the Tanakh, the silence of God. But what's also striking in the Passion is its turn to what I've previously styled the Tanakh's minority report on silence. The three synoptic Gospels repeatedly portray Jesus as silent, at key moments in his trials. And it's all the more striking that John's gospel records Jesus as delaying an answer to Pontius Pilate's questioning, since John's portrait of Jesus lays very little stress indeed on his silence. That's hardly surprising, since the theme of John's interpretation of Jesus is his identification with logos, word, discourse. The Jesus of John spends most of the gospel discussing himself. The reference behind Jesus' repeated refusals to answer the representatives of worldly power is at least twofold. First, to that strangest and most personal of psalms, Psalm, Psalm 39, where the speaker is, singer, is dumb before God. And then he speaks with him in meditation on the brevity of human life. But beyond that is the controlling image the patient silence of the suffering servant in Deutero-Isaiah's text at chapter 53. Now, later Judaism recognized the connection which had been made. It's very significant that this passage of Isaiah did not form any part of the public liturgical readings from the prophets known as the Haptarot, even though the passages immediately before and after it were among those used. And even though Isaiah forms about half of extant medieval Jewish lectionaries. Well, let's now move backwards from the Passion narratives into the accounts of Jesus' public ministry before his Passion. Christianity's spectacular later turn to ascetic and hermetic monastic life encouraged a search for precedence in the life of Jesus. One prime inspiration was to be his agonized solitary prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest. And once more, it indicates its bedrock status in the gospel narratives by being in in all four. It's in John as well. All four versions of it hinge on a Jesus who addresses God and gets no reply. That presents strong echoes of the crucifixion themes of the appeal to a silent God. And then there is a cross current to the silent suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In the fourth century, the biblical commentator, Jerome, exploited this in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel. He, in fact, pioneered the application of the resonant term, Man of Sorrows, from Isaiah, to apply it to Jesus in Gethsemane, first time it appeared. Another earlier motif of Jesus' ministry seems unlikely to have been invented. The various accounts of his retreat to mountains, wilderness places. That's also been a major theme on which ascetics have fruitfully dwelt over the centuries, but we've got to be a little cautious about this. Arguably, the thrust of those originally rather different. It's like the establishment of the 12 as the inner ring of Jesus' disciples. It represents a major appropriation of the identity of Israel. Jesus was reenacting Moses' ascent ascent of Mount Sinai, or the recapitulation of that ascent by Elijah when Elijah met God as a still, small voice. And the obvious passage in these wilderness accounts, on which ascetics could later seize, was the story shared by the synoptic writers of Jesus' temptation. It's very succinct in Mark, whose reference is so brief that he must have expected his hearers to already know it, so he doesn't bother telling them. Matthew and Luke much expand Mark's cryptic account. They interrupt Jesus's 40 days of silence with dialogue. But it's an inner dialogue. This is a verbal contest with Satan, his temptations, Jesus's temptations. Matthew and Luke portray Jesus stopping the dialogue becoming a conversation by simply turning each of Jesus' replies to Satan into a quotation from the Tanakh, which brooks no answer. Satan wishes to chatter, Jesus deflects the attempt. This is a battle with thoughts. Well, above the substratum of what Jesus actually said and did are the interpretations which the Gospel writers put on the stories which they inherited. Some of the evangelists' preoccupations pull away from any theme of silence which Jesus might have expressed. Take, for instance, a cluster of features in Mark, the first of the synoptic gospel writers. Those features were modified or dropped when Matthew and Luke came to adapt Mark's material. The Jesus of Mark repeatedly, but not consistently, commands silence on his disciples and on those who witness or experience his miracles. His disciples, equally without any apparent consistency, misunderstand who he is and the significance of his message, even though he's chosen them as the Twelve. More than a century ago, these Marken problems were characterized by Wilhelm Freyder as the messianic secret. Well, how might Mark's well-informed readers understand a picture of disciples chosen by the Messiah who fail to penetrate what is often said to them perfectly plain, (laughs) perfectly plainly. A veritable industry of biblical scholarship has been based on that question. Yet for a reader reader with an historical turn of mind, many of the answers offered seem to avoid the straightforward deduction that Mark's presentation is polemical. Jesus' disciples are undeniably his disciples, but they are presented as failing miserably as apostles in Jesus's lifetime. Now what could Mark's motive have been for such an unheroic presentation? We know of the tensions between the first church in Jerusalem and the churches in which Paul of Tarsus became a prominent teacher. It's been one of the cliches of Western biblical criticism since the days of Ferdinand Christian Bauer, nearly two centuries ago, to see a clash as lying behind the text of the New Testament. Well, the power of cliches normally lies in the fact that they are true. The Jerusalem church remained closer to the parent Judaism than other churches did. That secondary grouping of other churches revered the ministry and then the memory of Paul, who suffered the potential handicap of never having met the Lord in his public ministry, unlike his contemporaries in the Jerusalem leadership who included relatives of the Lord. Now, in Mark's Gospel, the narrative does not only belittle the first disciples. Mark calls attention to the fact that Jesus' family had no understanding of him and no little hostility towards him. And Mark makes little of the identification of Jesus as son of David. For this disciple, genealogy or immediate contact with the Lord are not strong criteria for authority. Hence this picture of original disciples who are imperfect while undeniably still remaining the original disciples. And Mark's deployment of silence and secrecy extends into that greatest Christian silence of all, the resurrection. A mystery which might be described in more senses than one as the vanishing point of the classical Christian message. Nowhere in the New Testament is there a description of the resurrection. The New Testament is a literature with a blank at its center. Yet this blank is also its obsessive focus. And the silence is doubled in Mark's Gospel, which ends with an extraordinary syntactical abruptness in the words, For they were afraid, ever born to a now, there's no other known example of a classical Greek text ending with the word "gar," let alone a text so solemnly freighted as Mark. And the effect might be likened in English to ending, for they were afraid, you see, with nothing to follow it. A gospel which opened with a ringing proclamation that it was the story of the Son of God ends with this bizarre anticlimax. Small wonder that the gospel was early supplied with a conclusion which was more satisfactory and upbeat, but clearly secondary. Now, Sir Frank Commode produced a sensitive reading of this apparently botched ending of Mark. This, what he calls a stupid silence, may represent art, not artlessness. As the women flee from the tomb, ringing in their ears is the angel's command, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. But the women do not obey. The disciples do not hear of the resurrection from them. But the readers of Mark's community know what the good news is. They can supply it for themselves. Fancifully, and this is just my fancy, one might picture a recital of Mark's gospel to these first readers in which the final declamation of is followed by a little pause of shock, followed by wild cheering and applause. What Mark seeks to affirm to the Christians with whom he identifies is that the people best placed to hear the good news missed it. His own community has heard and understood it. Now, the earliest witness to that sort of community is in the corpus of authentic letters from Paul of Tarsus, and immediately obvious in these is a concern for community building in exciting but difficult circumstances. We glimpse communities whose worship is noisy, not merely merely with songs and psalms, but prophecies in unknown tongues, glossolalia, a mark of a high temperature spirituality. These communities are prone to proclaim their new faith in ways which may divide rather than build up the congregation. For they have that propensity to quarrelsomeness and self-assertion which is never far from a room full of enthusiasts. Paul has regard to all these realities. He makes a series of warnings which illustrate his suspicion of unregulated prophecy, let alone the gift of tongues. Do not despise prophesying, but test everything, is his carefully balanced precept to the Christians of Thessalonica. Now that's remarkable. In ancient Israel, none but the enemies of God, or on occasions God himself, as in the case of Ezekiel, makes a command to silence prophecy a necessary aspect of community harmony. It's particularly significant that that that, uh, word of Paul is followed by a straight prohibition. Half the Corinthian congregation is told not to speak at all. With exceptional emphasis, Paul insists that as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in churches. The forcefulness of his assertion is a sure sign that in many congregations, the situation was precisely the reverse. (laughs) Running through such calls for restraint in Paul's epistles is a concern for the reputation of the infant Christian communities in the eyes of outsiders. That preoccupation is echoed by those who express their admiration for Paul by writing in his name, such as the writers of letters to Timothy and Titus. That theme is quite foreign to the Tanakh whose authors sought no justification for God's chosen people in terms of the esteem of other nations. Perhaps, on occasions, fear from other nations, but not esteem. There's a self-consciousness about the first century Christian communities presented in the Epistles and the Book of Acts, which one one might, in unsympathetic mood, call a Christian quest for respectability in the Roman Empire. 1 Timothy, for instance, urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful life in godliness and dignity in every way. Now, it's worth asking what such a peaceful life was meant to look like. The writer of Two Thessalonians, maybe Paul, maybe not, says bossily, we hear that some of you are living in disorderliness, mere busybodies not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work in quietness and to earn their own living. Being disorderly is equated here with not doing any work. Back in the Bethany which Jesus had known, it would have been Martha rather than Mary who would have applauded that sentiment. Now it's easier to warm to another concern of Paul, which was for the internal peace and harmony of his frequently strife-riven-ridden communities. So he pleads with his Thessalonians, be at peace with yourselves. And his exhortation to the Philippians swells into a triumphant prediction of what the reward will be for a community tranquilly expecting the imminent end of all earthly troubles. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance, the Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's perhaps the nearest that Paul of Tarsus comes to associating the concept of peace with a concept—a cosmic silence. But in his surviving writings, Paul explicitly turns away from the possibility of writing the sort of apocalyptic text with which he would have been perfectly familiar and which he certainly could have written. He points out to the Corinthians that he himself had been transported into the third heaven. That was exactly the sort of journey that apocalypticists had been describing for at least a century before but Paul abruptly tells his audience that it is not lawful to discuss such things. By contrast, the final New Testament author, John the Divine, had no hesitation in writing an apocalypse. He witnessed the four horsemen of the apocalypse doing their worst, and the din of praise went up, and the lamb opened a series of seals on the scroll, And when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. But the sentence has not ended. John adds, with engaging banality, for about half an hour. (coughs) Not half an hour, about half an hour. Now that's a puzzling phrase. Imprecision is never a desirable quality in allegory or typology. Moreover, John's witness of silence is only part of the tribulations of the last days, and in no sense a culmination of them. The approximate half hour is the only silence in Revelation, otherwise there is a crescendo of noise in the classic style of theophany in the Tanakh, first catastrophic and then triumphant. There's no hint that the final triumph of the enthroned lamb in a heavenly Jerusalem is anything but a round of perpetual worship a greater, more glorious, and more permanent version of the earthly temple, whose ruins were now no more than a miserable spectacle in a devastated provincial city. So silence is not the goal of the tribulations in John's vision. Nevertheless, the image would have a rich cluster of overtones and echoes for readers living at a time when there was still no great chasm between Christianity and Judaism. One strand in the skein may therefore be the product of reflection on the now-vanished round of worship in the Jerusalem temple. Much of the structure of John, uh, Revelation chapters 1 to 8, uh, of which the silent half-hour is the culmination, can be seen as following the sequence of the animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. But still another picture of silence is provided by the roughly contemporary apocryphal text, the wisdom of Solomon. Now this includes an extended meditation on Israel's tribulations in Egypt in which silence triggers God's vengeance on the Egyptians. I quote, while gentle silence enveloped all things and night in its swift course was now half gone, thy all-powerful word leapt from heaven, from the royal throne into the midst of the land that was doomed. Well, we might snatch gratefully at this mention in the wisdom of Solomon of half a period of time, parallel to the approximate half hour in Revelation chapter 8. We might take pleasure in the symmetry that in both accounts, this turning point is likewise only partway through the clash between Israel and Egypt. A yet more compelling context of the silence after the opening of the seven seals is to be found by returning to the theme which ended our journey through the Tanakh, Meditation on primeval silence and cosmic Sabbath. One strong hint for that is the self-identification of him who sits on the throne. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The unformed world before creation was silent and this was replicated in the silence of the Sabbath at the end of creation, still more will both be recapitulated at the end of time. Such was the belief to be found in texts with no Christian consciousness. First century Christians added their confident belief that the Lord was imminently to return in the last days, so Sabbath silence can be glimpsed in Christian literature well beyond the book of Revelation. It was now connected to the word, logos, whom John the evangelist had seen in the beginning of all things. And in that opening hymn of his gospel, John took the unprecedented step of identifying this word with a human being, Jesus the Messiah or Christ. In the next generation, two distinct faiths emerged forced to craft new identities, to meet new situations of defeated expectations and potential despair. The temple was destroyed, gone, a common trauma for both Jews and Christians. For Christians alone, the Lord Jesus had not returned in glory. And exploring the next half millennium in my next lecture, We'll see how that great disappointment radically reshaped attitudes to the silences of the sacred. Thank you.
0: We've had something extraordinary (laughs) this afternoon, something remarkably fresh and original in this account of language, noise, silence in the Tanakh and the Christian New Testament. Professor McCulloch has very kindly agreed to receive questions or comments on his lecture, but before we begin with questions, let's first have a short break for anyone who needs to slip away. Okay, we'll now have about uh, 10 minutes of questions. And who would like to begin? There is a roving mic. And uh, if you'd raise your hand,
1: uh, we'll bring the mic to you. I always have a pause in the middle of my lectures in Oxford, and uh, I say to students, it absolutely doesn't matter if no one has any questions at all. (laughs) It is not embarrassing. (laughs) So same thing applies here.
0: (sighs) Okay, we've got a question. Yes not exactly a question, but I wonder if you might speak to Martin Buber's The Word That Is Spoken. Um, I've been reading that, trying to do a close reading of that, and um, some of what you said really echoed with that, the beginning, the logos, the word that is spoken, what is created in the in-between people in dialogue. Is it fair to ask you if you might speak to that?
1: Oh Well, you've read Buber more recently than me. <laughs> um, Well, what what can one say about that? I mean, logos is such a fascinating word. Like so many Greek words, it's sort a cluster of of meanings, like a spider's legs out from the centre. Of course, it doesn't just mean word. It means discourse. Uh, Those meanings stretch out as far as rumour, or even falsehood, if you look at logos. Uh, And, of course, one doesn't expect all those... uh, resonances to go through the, the, John's Logos, uh, but it, it, discourse and conversation, uh, story, all those things are involved in Logos. But what I think is fascinating, I mean, one, one of the things which interested me in the theme of all these six lectures is mm-hmm. how one fits the particularity of Jesus, or the historical story of Jesus alongside the profound silence, uh, the inwardness of the spirit. I think these are two very interesting tensions within Christianity, but um, I I think I'll leave it at that and see where we go go onto another question. Hmm. Uh,
0: Just a second, the the mic is coming.
1: Thank you. just a comment and, and a query. Um, I'll just say uh, that I found your handling of the Gospel of Mark uh, more brave than persuasive. But um, <clears throat> let me uh, go on to the comment that I wanted to make, or to a query I wanted to ask you. Um, in Gnostic sources of um, somewhere between the second to the fourth century, at least, uh, there are cases where Sige, silence is meta- m- treated metaphysically or, or, or is, is a way of referring to God. Do you have yeah. any thoughts about the significance of that? It, it, I will next week, uh, next, tomorrow. <laughs> so I won't anticipate what I'm going to say then. But um, yeah, that's, that's clearly very important. Yeah, hugely important. Question in the middle here. As Gar never ends a sentence, do you think that the rest of Mark's gospel was torn off? As it begins abruptly and ends
0: abruptly,
1: that has been one of the sort of great explanations of uh, biblical criticism in the last one hundred and fifty years. It just seems to me extremely unlikely. Uh, surely there is enough uh, common community understanding of this text and memory of this text to reconstruct it. I, I simply don't find that plausible, uh, and I, I think a, a reading which takes what we've got seriously. Is, is a more effective way of dealing with it. And clearly the embarrassment was there very early, uh, but not quite early enough to eliminate the fact that the, the, the ending we have now is not the ending, it's a, it's a, it's a fake. But uh, I, 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 I've often toyed with that idea. Being a historian and archivist by trade, I like the idea of a missing page, but it just doesn't seem to me to ring true in the way that a sacred text is constructed.
0: Well, I think that concludes the, uh, today's the afternoon. Now, the applause that you received at the end of your lecture, I think, indicated better than, than my words can the appreciation that we all feel for this first Gifford lecture. You certainly have captured our interest, defined a set of terms, defined the, uh, the context. And any of those, any of us who were expecting perhaps a, a John Cage moment of 40 minutes of, of silence were certainly disabused. We look forward very much to your second lecture on the triumph of monastic silence, which will be presented here in Saint Cecilia's Hall tomorrow afternoon at 530. Again, could I invite everyone to the reception in Professor McCulloch's honor uh, immediately downstairs? And there also, I believe, there'll be an opportunity for some book signings. Mm -hmm. And um, could you join me once again in thanking Professor McCulloch for a splendid presentation?